the small little letter of Jude. And what I would like to do over the next four weeks as we work our way through this little letter is each week I would like for us to read the letter in its entirety. Even though we'll only be focusing on a small passage, I want you each week to get the full glimpse of what Jude is trying to communicate to the churches. Jude writes, inspired by God's Holy Spirit, Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ. May mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. The rest of the verses won't be on the screen. I hope you're looking at God's word. Now I want to remind you although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels, who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, served as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Yet in like manner, these people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Woe to them, for they walked in the way of Cain, And abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. These are blemishes on your love feasts as they feast with you without fear. Looking after themselves, waterless clouds swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea, casting up the foam of their own shame. Wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord came with ten thousands of his holy ones 
to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loud-mouthed boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people devoid of the spirit. But you, beloved, build yourselves up in your most holy faith. Pray in the Holy Spirit. Keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Amen. Father, would you help us this morning as we come to your word? May it be for our good and your glory, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Some of you have come to our church in these last 12 weeks. Some of you have joined our church. You have heard our vision series that we want to be a church that's rooted, that's reaching, that's replicating. And you have heard us preach about these topics and we've tried to link those thoughts to texts of scripture and principles that come from the word of God. But now we get back to what we do best. Now we come back to verse by verse exposition of God's word. If we're going to be a church that's rooted in scripture, then our commitment on Sunday mornings is that the vast majority of the diet that we intake are going to be books of the Bible, chunks of scripture on which we can be feasting and having our souls nourished week in and week out. Expositional preaching is not simply verse by verse preaching. If you ever hear somebody tell you that, that's not true. Expositional preaching can be preaching from one book of the Bible and then the next week from another book of the Bible and from the next week another book of the Bible. Expositional preaching is preaching that takes the meaning of the text as the author intended it and gives it to the audience so that the Holy Spirit might take it and apply it in our own context and in our own situation so that we might glorify Christ more honorably, more rightly, more deeply in our lives by understanding and living out the meaning of the text that was intended by the Spirit inspiring the original author as they give it to its original audience. And so we come to the Bible and we ask, what does it say? 
What did the author intend? To whom was he writing? And how can we now apply that to our own life? And yet I do believe that the best way to do preaching is to do expositional preaching that goes verse by verse through chapters and through books so that it's all tied together, so that it is all kept together. Friends, there are good preachers who don't preach this way. There are preachers much better than I who don't preach this way. But there are also countless churches this morning that will gather together and they'll hear one little snippet from a few verses of the Bible and the next week another little snippet from a few verses of the Bible and they'll never be able over the course of their life unless they are a devout student of the Word of God themselves. They'll never be able to hear preaching from the whole counsel of God. And that's a shame in the church. And so this morning, if you're coming to First Baptist for the first time, or you're coming and you've just started over these last few months, this is first and foremost who we are and what we're about. And as we come to preach a book like Jude, even in its reading, you may have thought, there's some weird stuff in there. It's been a while since I've read this little letter. Can't wait to get to the next few weeks and see how he's going to interpret and explain all of those weird things. One of the reasons that we need to preach through the whole counsel of God is because we will avoid little letters like Jude. When it reminds us over and over again of stuff that happened in the Old Testament, then we say, well, that means I'm going to have to go back and remind myself of what happened in the Old Testament. Let me just flip over to a passage that doesn't talk about the Old Testament. And the thing about Jude is that Jude actually cites in two places works that aren't even in the Bible. Jude cites two what we would call extra-canonical books. He quotes from the Assumption of Moses, and he quotes from the book of Enoch, books that we do not consider to be a part of our canon. Why in the world would he do that? Why would he cite works that weren't inspired by the Holy Spirit, that we don't consider to be a part of the Bible? Why would he include those? And what in the world is he talking about? Love feasts and spraying up foam, aimless stars and waves that do dangerous things to the people of God. What does he mean and what is the purpose for us? in our context today. Before we begin, let me give you just a few points of historical context about the book of Jude. Some of these we will go through over the next few weeks and even this morning we'll touch on some of them. But before we jump into our slides and to our points from the passage this morning, which will only be verses one through four, let me give you just a few quick points of historical context. Number one, I believe that this is written by Jude, the brother of James and also the brother of Jesus. There has been debate about this throughout the centuries. There are other people who have the name Jude. It was a common name. There are reasons that we will see each and every week that we believe that this is written by Jude, the brother of the Lord Jesus Christ, the brother of James. There is a strong link and connection between the book of Jude and the book of 2 Peter. We'll look at one of those connections today. But if you have time in your devotional life, I would commend you to read the book of Jude and then to read the book of 2 Peter, and then read the book of Jude, and then read the book of 2 Peter, 
and listen to all of the common language. And so the language is so similar, it has caused theologians and commentators and Bible experts and scholars throughout the centuries to say there, there has to be some kind of linkage between these two books. Either one is relying upon the other, or the other is relying upon the one, or perhaps there was some common source that they drew from as the Holy Spirit inspired them to write their own letters, but both Jude and Peter are addressing almost parallel situations that they're giving to their churches. The language is strikingly similar in many places, which has led most to believe that Jude was written between the 60s and the 80s. My New Testament professor, Tom Schreiner, argues for an early date in the 60s. This is just one more effort by us to believe and to be convinced that all of the books of Scripture inspired by the Holy Spirit were completed by the end of the first century. Within the lifetime of eyewitnesses who would have been around when Jesus was still alive, who could have detested and contested the works that are written in these little letters. To whom is Jude writing? When, we, when Paul writes to the church at Rome, we know to whom Paul is writing. When he writes to the Colossians, it's clear. When he writes his individual letters to Timothy or to Titus, it's clear. But with Jude, we don't know. And we really have no way of knowing. Same for Peter. And because we don't know the exact recipient of the letter that Jude is writing and a couple of other letters in the New Testament who are not addressed to any particular person or any particular church, these are often called the little c, Catholic epistles. They're a more universal letter, even though I will argue over the next few weeks that I do think Jude had a particular church in mind, a particular area, a particular situation, a particular context. He just doesn't name it and tell us who it is. But these are more universal principles to the church because the author and the Holy Spirit know that we're all going to be facing these same battles. There's 25 short verses. This entire letter of Jude is shorter than many of the passages that I try to preach from on Sunday mornings. And so we're going to spend four weeks taking this little letter apart verse by verse and trying to discern why Jude is writing about these false teachers who are troubling the church and what the church should do about it. The first thing that we see in the letter this morning is the salutation. The salutation. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James. Verse one is the salutation and gives us, again, as I've already mentioned, the author first. This was a typical way of beginning any ancient letter, especially in the Greco-Roman world, much as we would do, except we put our names at the end, right? Love, Cody. Sincerely, Jeffrey. Whatever the case may be, we include our name at the very end. They would write their name at the very beginning. This is who's writing. And this is who I'm writing to. I want you to understand that this letter is coming from me. And so we're told that this letter is by Jude. My translation, the ESV reads, a servant of Jesus Christ and the brother of James. Many of your translations may read the slave of Jesus. There's two different words that are used in the New Testament to describe a servant or to describe a slave. 
One is the word that we derive our word deacon from. It's the word diakonos, and it means to serve, to, to be a minister. One who will come about inside the body serving another. And this word is used both in the office to describe the deacons of the, of the body of the Lord Jesus, but it will also describe just the service of people within the body. And so if you serve the body of Christ, you are deaconing, the Bible says. But it's not the word that's used here. It's the other word that's often used, a bondservant or a slave. It's the word doulos. Jude describes himself first and foremost as a slave of Jesus Christ. Now, if anybody had the ability to tout his connection to Jesus, it was Jude. If anybody had the ability to step forward and say, yeah, that's my brother. Y'all listen up now. That's, that's my brother. But he doesn't. Much like his brother James, the entire family of Jesus, the Bible tells us, didn't believe in him until the latter days of his ministry and probably not until his resurrection, 1 Corinthians 15 implies. And so Jude comes now after the resurrection of Jesus as a believer in Jesus, as a servant of Jesus, and he doesn't hold on to his brotherhood to Jesus, but instead describes himself as the brother of James. Now, again, there's debate about who wrote this book. The name James was very common. The name Jude was very common. But most conservative scholars believe that the fact that Jude felt no need and the Holy Spirit did not inspire him to qualify who James was reminds us that this James would have been well-known. He didn't have to give a descriptor. He didn't have to say, this is the James I'm talking about. He just said, James. And everyone knew that James was the leader of the church of Jerusalem, the brother of the Lord Jesus. So what I want you to see right here from the very beginning is that Jude describes himself as the slave of Jesus and the brother of James. This communicates both humility in that he did not describe himself as one that should be listened to because he was kinfolk with Jesus. It describes his humility, his status as a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ, but also authority. Because he was connected to Jesus, because he was a servant of Jesus, and because he was the brother of James, the leader of the church of Jerusalem, one who had great stature in the church, Jude is introducing this letter saying, and yet I carry the authority of the Lord Jesus himself. I'm speaking with his authority, and so you should listen. Jude, the author, gives his greeting now to the recipients. The second part of verse number one says, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ. She was a mother. She was one who had children. And she was one who tended her offspring. Now, is that three different ways of describing three different people? Or is that one way 
of describing one person in different ways. Do you see the description that's given there? There's not three different groups. I'm writing to the called. And I'm also writing to the beloved. And I'm also writing to the kept. Jude says, no, no, no. These are three descriptors for one group. For one people. For one church. The ones who are called. The ones who are beloved. The ones who are kept. Kletos is the one word that's used to describe the called. When we read in the, in the New Testament of the paraclete, the one who is called to come alongside us, the descriptor is of the Holy Spirit. Para meaning to come alongside or by, and kletos, the one who's called. And so it's the same word that's used here to describe those who are in the Lord Jesus Christ. They are the called. You may hear things like this in your everyday conversation. Who's coming? Hey, honey, do you know who's coming over? Did you call everybody? I called them all, honey. I'm not sure who's coming, but I called everybody that you told me to call. That's not the intent that's meant here. Well, who, whoever's called, of those who are called, you know, some will come. Not everybody's going to come, but we called everybody. The word that's used here in the New Testament to describe those who are called are the ones who are effectually called by the Spirit of God unto salvation, and they will come. It's Romans 8 language. For those whom he foreknew, he predestined to become conformed to the image of his son, so that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those he called, he will sanctify, he will justify, he will glorify. These are the ones who are called. Which ones? The ones who are beloved. This is no light word. One of my favorite preachers always refers to his audience, and I've found myself doing this occasionally. It's not really my natural language. It's because I've heard other preachers do it, and I just think it's right, and it comes out. He refers to them as the beloved. It's not really language that we use in 21st century America. Like us good Baptists, we call each other brothers and sisters, and there's nothing wrong with that. The people of God, the church of God, the family of God. But occasionally, we need to use biblical language and just remind one another, like, we're the beloved. We're the beloved. This is not love in the same sense that God loves everyone who's created in his image, Genesis 1, 26 and 27. This is the special saving, favoring love of God that's been set on those who are in Jesus. And if you're reading the King James translation that uses the word sanctified there in verse two is just another reason that that's a bad translation. It's not the word sanctified. It's the word beloved. There, it doesn't change the meaning. It doesn't change the group. It, there's nothing wrong with the people that are translating the Bible, but it's a bad translation. The word is beloved. And then the verse is kept. We're kept. There is discrepancy, and your Bible probably has a footnote, whether it should say kept for Jesus Christ or kept by Jesus Christ. I would argue for the latter. It's kept by in my belief, and yet it doesn't change the meaning. Who are we kept for? We are kept for Jesus Christ. Who are we kept by? 
We are kept by Jesus Christ for Jesus Christ. These are three descriptors of the same group. Those who are called, those who are beloved, those who are kept. These are the recipients that Jude is writing to. And then he offers his greeting. Mercy and peace and love. May you receive mercy and peace and love. They needed all of these things from God in order to be able to extend these things to the people with whom they were having to interact. False teachers had come in. Division had occurred. Sensuality was being lived out. There were battles that were being fought. Sin was running rampant in certain places. And the believers were having to stand against it. They were having to stand for truth. And yet they were having to call people out of their sin and try to bring them back into the way. And so Jude writes to those who are threefold, called, beloved, and kept. And he gives them a threefold greeting. Mercy and peace and love. His prayer and his greeting is that they would receive these things. These words, we could define them each and spend two or three minutes on each one, but I'm going to just take that you probably understand the very basic meaning of the words mercy and love and peace. In Paul's writings, we typically see two words, grace and peace. Interestingly enough, Jude doesn't include the word grace. Mercy and grace are almost synonymous We use them frequently hand in hand, although theologically we could split hairs and apply them in different ways. But Jude simply takes the words mercy and peace and love, wraps them up to the people that he's writing to. I want you to be extended of God these things in your life. I want them to be multiplied to you. In just a few minutes, we're going to look at one of the most beautiful prayers in all of Scripture, but I would encourage you to allow your prayers to be saturated with biblical language. When you don't know what to pray for someone, when you don't know what words to use, Romans 6 is clear, the Lord Jesus will help us in that, right? The Spirit utters for us even when we don't know what to pray, and yet so often I'll tell people, like, just open your Bible and pray the prayers of the Bible, Pray the language of the Bible. And this is a very easy way. Like, I don't even know what's going on in their life, Lord. I don't know what's going on in their church. I don't know what's going on in their marriage. I don't know what's going on with their kids. But my prayer is that you might multiply to them mercy and peace and love. Could you imagine getting a letter from Jude and having it read at church? as the people gather around and Jude writes to those who are called and beloved and kept. Do you ever feel like you're not being kept very well because your faith is weak and sin is strong? And the tempter seems to have more allure than the Savior, then we would be reminded of the hymn that we often sing by Keith and Kristen Getty. When I fear my faith will fail, Christ will hold me fast. When the tempter would prevail, 
he will hold me fast. I could never keep my hold through life's fearful path. For my love is often cold. He must hold me fast. Those he saves are his delight. We could use the word beloved. Christ will hold me fast. Precious in his holy sight, he will hold me fast. He'll not let my soul be lost. His promises shall last, bought by him at such a cost. He will hold me fast. For my life he bled and died. Christ will hold me fast. Justice has been satisfied. He will hold me fast. Raised with him to endless life. He will hold me fast. Till our faith is turned to sight. He will hold me fast. He will keep you. But only if you're in Jesus. The second thing we see from the text this morning is not just the salutation, but the exhortation. The exhortation, verse number three, beloved, there it is again, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once and for all delivered to the saints. The exhortation to the people Pastor Tim was asking me in our prayer time this morning, what, what's, the, what's the thrust that you're going for this morning? What, what's the main thing? And I think this is not only the main thing for this morning, this is the main thing for the entire letter of Jude, that the people of God would be ready, willing, and able to contend for the faith. Beloved, he said, I, I wanted to write to you. Again, there's, there's been speculation. We don't know exactly what was going on in the context to whom he's writing, what was going on in Jude's mind as the Holy Spirit inspired. But it seems from the language as we parse it out that he had an intention that he wanted to write a particular letter about a particular thing. He wanted to perhaps just encourage them about the salvation that they share in Jesus. And yet there was an intrusion. He got word There was a report. The Holy Spirit gave him insight into the reality that there were problems in this church or among the churches. And so he said, although I was eager to write to you about one thing, I found it necessary to write to appeal to you about something else. Listen, friends, both in the inspiration of Scripture and in the preaching of the Word, there are weeks where encouragement and comfort and edification and grace are the spirit of the day when the word needs to come in front of God's people and occasionally God's word comes with rebuke and exhortation and admonition and a call to repentance and Jude said it was one thing but another thing caused me to to move now Does this mean that Jude was just doing whatever Jude wanted to do? I wanted to write this, but I found it necessary to write this. There is no discrepancy here still with the inspiration of God's Holy Spirit. 
How did Jude know that he needed to move from one intention to another? The Spirit inspired him to address the problems that were now in the church. And so he writes that they would contend. The language is language of a military or an athletic context. To strive or to struggle with intense effort. To contend for the faith. Secondly, what are we contending for? We're contending for the faith. He's not simply describing personal faith. He's not describing that you should have faith, just belief in Jesus. The language that is used here, the word faith as it is used in this context and in other passages throughout the New Testament, gives an understanding that there's a body of doctrine. There is gospel teaching There is orthodox Christian belief. There is apostolic tradition that's been handed down. The people of God know what they're to believe. They know how they're to live. And some are deluding the truth. And they're deceiving people. And so Jude writes and says, you must contend for the faith. This body of Christian teaching, you must hold fast to it and contend for it. You must wrestle with those who would come against it. You must struggle to make sure that it is being purely taught and properly lived out. And then he says, the faith that is once and for all. I remember taking Greek in seminary. And we studied this particular literary device and word usage in the New Testament, and it's called a hapax legomenon. And it's when a word is used one time in the entire New Testament. It's called a hapax. One time. And so we can't compare the word usage to any other word usage. We would have to go to outside sources to see how the language compared across Greek and other works but we can't find it anywhere else in the Bible. It's just a unique word that's not given anywhere else. And this is the word that's used here to describe the faith. It's a hapax faith. It's a once and for all faith. It's an unchanging, enduring, and uncompromising body of teaching. And it must be preserved. And it must be fought for. And finally, he says, and it's ours. The faith that is once and for all delivered to the saints. It's ours, friend. It's it's for those who are in Christ. These, These are the ones who must contend for what God has given them. I I was thinking this week as I was reading this text, when, when the brand Under Armour first started gaining fame and notoriety and they had, you know, million dollar commercials on TV to try to get you to buy their stuff. The, the, the first place that they were always trying to hit was obviously the athletic component It began with football and other sports, but those early commercials, if you remember, they would have these athletes going through their rigorous routines, and they're sweating, and they're fighting, and their muscles are pumping, and they're wearing their Under Armour gear, and at the end of one of those early commercials, you saw one of those big, you know, probably defensive linemen saying, 
We must protect this house. That's what coaches will tell their team, right? Nobody comes in our house, on our field, and pushes us around. Unless you're an Arkansas fan. (laughs) We let anybody push us around. We must protect this house, right? You defend your own turf. Whether in the military or in athletic competitions, you defend what is yours. And this is the idea that's being held out to the church. It is ours. It's been given once and for all. The Savior bled and delivered this to his, and and they must fight for it. And then he gives the motivation. Why did he have to write? Verse 4. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation. Ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. Most believe that this wasn't simply teaching that was taking place, but lifestyle. Those who crept into the church and said they believed what everybody else believed, but then began living as if they didn't. It wasn't that they simply were coming in teaching heresy. They were living heresy. And of course, the two go hand in hand. If you're living heresy, you're probably also spouting it and passing it on to other people. And the language that he uses here to describe those that have crept in, he uses different phrases. And I believe his language is strong and it is striking. He doesn't even want to give them names. It's almost as if he's throwing spirit-inspired epitaphs at them. Certain people. I'm not even going to name them, certain people. The Bible does name people. Paul often named people. But here, Jude just simply says, certain people. It's almost as if in 21st century America, we would say, you people. Certain people have crept in. They've crept in unnoticed. How how else can they be described? They're the people who pervert God's grace and they deny Christ's lordship. Now, how do you deny Christ's lordship? You stand up in front of the church on Sunday mornings and say, hey guys, I know I've worshiped with y'all for five or 10 years. You know, I've been a member here for quite a while. Y'all see me every Sunday morning and I take the Lord's Supper with y'all and we sing the same songs, but You know, there's just some stuff in my life that's been going on, and I wanted to let you all know that I don't really believe that any longer, and and so this is me denying the Lord Jesus, and I'm going to go out from among you now. Y'all be blessed. Unless you're like a celebrity pastor, it never happens that way. People creep in. They creep in unnoticed. They're elected to serve on church staffs. They're nominated to be deacons. 
People look at them from the outside and everything looks good. They've got positions of influence and positions of privilege. Surely they would be fine in leading the church. They're also just normal church members. They come and they shake our hands and, oh, we just love this church. It's just so welcoming and friendly and we're just so ready to just plug in. And yeah, you know, we believe everything that you believe. We've been long, long time members of the church. We come from this church over here. Friends, that's the way that it happens. And then before you know it, there are little explosions all over the church. People who, by their lifestyle, prove that they're denying the lordship of Jesus and they're perverting the grace of Jesus and they're allowing sensuality and immorality. Most believe that whatever situation Jude is writing to it clearly had a sensual and sexually immoral context as well as probably lots of other things. And he writes about how these folks have to be, they have to be dealt with. The church has to be protected. The body of Christ has to be protected. And this body of truth has to be protected. It's an admonition to the church, friends, It's not a call for every church member to be an expert apologist. When we talk about contending for the faith, I'm not up here asking each of you to go home and enroll in an online apologetics course or start watching hours and hours of debate on YouTube so that you can sharpen your skills when the Mormons and the Jehovah's Witnesses come to your door or that you line your shelves with all of the books about how to deal with people from other religions Although the Bible does tell us that we should be able to give a defense, that we should be able to engage, and the only way that we can engage is by knowing what other people believe, it should be a desire in our heart to to, to know more and to want to engage more. But friends, this is an admonition to the church. They've crept in among you unnoticed. These aren't other religions attacking the church and persecuting the church and mowing down Christians because they don't accept Islam. These are people who have said, yeah, we believe in Jesus too. And then their lives prove different. In Acts chapter 20, when Paul stood with the Ephesian elders at Miletus, he told them, for from among you, some will be Wolves among the sheep. If you'll flip back just a few pages to the book of Second Peter. Second Peter two one. Peter writes, but false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction, and many will follow their sensuality, and because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. See the similarity in the language? Now, there's one phrase there that's often talked about. What does it mean that long ago they were designated for this condemnation? I think it means that long ago they were designated for this condemnation. 
We see it in the Old Testament. We see it in the New Testament that God in his sovereignty has ordained because of his good pleasure that some will not accept the truth and they will be the ones who delude. And from the Old Testament on, there has been prophecies that if they go against the Lord and against his people and against his word, then they will face condemnation and destruction. So how do we apply this text? We must know the faith. We must know ourselves. And we must know the enemy. We must know the faith. You can't contend for a faith that you don't know. If you're a Christian who's coming two out of every four Sundays, you're never going to know the faith as well as you should. If you don't spend time learning the word of God week in and week out in your own home, you're never going to know the faith as you should. And you'll be led astray. Because certain people will creep in unnoticed and they'll begin saying things like, isn't all that matters love? And I mean, surely we're in a different day now. We can define marriage different. We can define gender different. We can, we can apply all of these things in different ways. Even though the church for 2,000 years has historically stood in different directions, we would say, oh, no, 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 no. Surely we know better. Friends, the reason that so many churches are going this way is because they will not contend for the faith. They will not stand, they will not struggle, they will not strive, they will not fight. Why? It's hard. And people persecute you and they laugh at you and the government comes against you. And people call you unloving and they call you exclusive and they call you divisive. Hey, put me in the camp with Jesus. That's where I want to be. But you've got to know the faith in order to defend it. You've also got to know yourself. Paul said, watch your life and your doctrine. Friends, the reality is some of you may be the ones who've crept in unnoticed. And you're on the edge of causing your life to be shipwrecked. Because you're not listening to the one that you say is your master and Lord. And third, you've got to know the enemy. You've got to know the enemy. You've got to know the way he's going to attack. And he's given us a blueprint on every page of scripture for how he's going to do it. Flip over to the book of Colossians and listen to this, one of, I believe, the most beautiful prayers of all of the Bible. Paul writes to the church at Colossae, this is the prayer that I would pray over you as we think about this text and the text in the coming weeks. Paul writes in Colossians 1, beginning in verse 9, and so from the day we heard of your faith, is what he's describing, we've not ceased to pray for you. And how does he pray? We ask that you may be Filled with the knowledge of God's will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding that they might know the faith so that you might walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, that they might know the faith and that they might live it out, that they might know themselves. May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who's qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness. There's the enemy. You gotta know the enemy. And he's transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sin. 
I was preaching in Louisville, Kentucky one Sunday morning, and I was talking about how it was my profound uh, disbelief that so many people could hold to the traditions of the world and every new conspiracy theory that came out and all of the new books that were being written, books like Da Vinci Code and others, and people could so gravitate to those and latch on to those, but refuse to believe the Bible. And so I was preaching as hard as I could. I had only been the pastor there for about six months. I was preaching about the power of the gospel and the power of the resurrection and how we have to stand and believe in it. And one of my deacons stood up in the back of the church and he said, we can't stand for something that's not true. I continued on for a couple of minutes thinking surely I must have misheard him as he just sat back down in his place. But when he eventually got up and stormed out of the back of the sanctuary, I knew I must have heard him rightly. I had lunch with him that week, and the long story made very short is that he went on to essentially deny believing every single thing that a church or a Christian would say it believed. His life would eventually bear that out. I was 25 years old. I was a single pastor. I had no idea really how to handle that kind of situation. He was a Democratic state senator and his wife was my assistant. And he had been a deacon in our church for over 20 years. And so over lunch, he said, don't, 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 don't worry about me. This won't be a fight. Don't worry about me. We'll just leave the church. And it wasn't my own wisdom, it wasn't my own knowledge, it was clearly the Holy Spirit saying, well, brother, first of all, I, I would hate for that to happen, but second of all, you don't remove yourself from the church. The church removes you from the church. This is a matter of discipline. This is a matter of us bringing you for heresy in front of the church. And all of the people that you have said that you believe with the last 20 years, no longer affirming that you're a believer in the Lord Jesus. And it was a sad day for our church. A church that only has 50 people in it, maybe on a good Sunday morning. I mean, you can't lose a powerful deacon. You can't lose somebody that's got privilege and stature. You can't, you can't lose a big giver to the church, can you? Oh, yes, you can. And the Lord will reward our obedience for contending for the faith. Amen. Let's pray together. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we pray that you would help us this morning to understand the truth, the imperative that comes to us that we must contend for the faith that is once and for all been delivered to the saints. And Father, when the world would attack us and when all that we feel that we can do is crumble, would you simply help us to stand? Would you help us to be steadfast and immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that our work in the Lord is not in vain? For we ask these things in the name of our Master and our Lord, Jesus Christ, amen.